Okay, Lust Hog Squad. Um, this is uh, Peter and Doug back for part two of Popcorn Drink Combos Retrospective on Stanley Kubrick's 1987 Full Metal Jacket. In part one, uh, which is uploaded already, uh, we discussed the first half of the movie uh, detailing the events at Paris Island in boot camp. Um, and this, uh, we are going to discuss uh, the Vietnam scenes. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Uh, we last left Joker, uh, partially covered in bits of brain and skull um, <laughs> uh, and gore from uh, both Sergeant Hartman and Private uh, Pyle in the men's room, I guess referred to as the head. And now we transition to him uh, on the streets of Vietnam with his new best friend, Rafter Man, encountering right. perhaps film's most famous prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, it is sampled um, quite impressively. Um, Me love you long time, she says. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of great things in this scene. One is the way that the camera tracks in from far away. It's, I mean, this scene begins with a long establishing shot, right? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, focuses on the prostitute, right? And we meet uh, Joker and his erstwhile companion, Rafter Man. Right, um, who's the new guy. Right, the FNG, the fucking new guy, I believe right. is the term. Um, and... Uh, you know, they enter into a very spirited negotiation uh, with a Vietnamese <laughs> prostitute, which which does a lot of things. One is it allows you to see that Joker has transformed, right? And he's now a veteran, right? He's mm -hmm. comfortable in this world. He doesn't bat an eye at negotiating hard with this prostitute. Um, yeah, really hard. And he injects a little political commentary, into it, yep. like where he says, you know, only fuck the ones that cough because the ones that have tuberculosis don't sleep with the Vietnamese officers. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, you know, Rafter Man is green and he's clearly enjoying Joker's repartee with the prostitute. He's taking photos. Yeah. He's taking photos of everything for the beginning of the movie. And then um, when uh, the, the, the moped riding thieves come by and rip off Rafter Man's camera, you know, Joker is not even upset. Like, like the whole thing, you know, he's just thrown his hands up at the war, right? And he mocks the thieves by imitating their karate moves, right? And Rafter Man is pissed because he lost his camera. Yeah, there's like a good interaction between Joker and... Uh, now Sergeant Joker and the and the thief, um, they kind of like uh, there's a little bluster between them because they both know that it's not going to go anywhere. But they kind of have a little feud at a distance where they sort of gesticulate at each other. Right. And there's a sort of the implication that like Joker is the invader. Right. And you may have the camera. Right. That's fine. But me and my boys have our guns and we're here in your country. Yeah, and Joker, yeah, everything's a mess as opposed to in the barracks. They established that right away. And then we see Rafter Man and Joker sort of walking back to base. Uh, and and 
Rafter Man basically says, like, he's tired of being in the rear. He wants to get out into combat, or as he refers to it, the shit. Um, and, and Joker basically tells him, no way. Like, are you an idiot? Like, why would you want to be in combat? Well, Joker wants to go, too. He says he's bored. You know? He's bored, but, but Joker but ends up in green. combat for being too big of a wise-ass in the press, you know, gaggle. Right. Um, do you know why Rafter Man is called Rafter Man? No. There's a bit in the book that's not in the movie where, like, I, there's some sort of melee of drunken activity to bar, and no one knows where he is, and they look up, and he's, like, hanging from a beam in the ceiling, <laughs> like, to escape a fight or something. Uh, and hence, he becomes Rafter Man. Well, he's he's uh, really the new guy, and they keep... Uh, say you know joker's basically responsible for him because joker at this point is is like a senior nco and um you know has been running around covering the war for stars and stripes from the marine viewpoint for probably close to a year or whatever his whole tour and he's he's a short timer he even mentions that at the end of the movie um uh in other words he's going home soon and um, Rafter Man is eager to go see. He's still idealistic about the war. He's still excited to be there. Right. And, um, and he is dismayed that the, the Vietnamese don't embrace them. Right. And he, there's a lot of bluster. Um, every, you know, every time he's, uh, there's anything happens, there's a lot of bluster. Whereas Joker kind of has this more cynical and nuanced cynical kind of detachment is a good way to put it i think yeah yeah i think he's he's detached he's still still sort of interested in what they're doing and he still is interested maybe in combat in a sense but it's tempered by a realistic uh, assessment of the risk um, and they go to their, like they said, they have their press gaggle or huddle or whatever you want to call it for Stars and Stripes. <clears throat> and, um, you know, you know, Joker is kind of mocking the government and the reporting and he's sort of being a dick to his CO. Uh, and the CO kind of kind of turns it around on him and gives him a more forward assignment. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, Rafter Man gets his wish, right? They're moving to the front, right? Yeah, they get to go to Way. And then uh, right then, there's the Tet Offensive. Right. right. His timing could not possibly be worse. Right. Um, the turning point of the war. And then he ends up uh, through uh, just pure accident. He ends up... Uh, Reuniting with his old buddy from Boot, uh, Cowboy, and his platoon of men, the Lust Hog Squad. Right, and Cowboy at this point is also a sergeant, and he's one—he's like the platoon sergeant. Right, exactly. Um, and you know that scene where they're reunited is great because you get the sense that there's no real friends. Like Joker doesn't really have any friends. And then when he runs into Cowboy, it's like someone he actually likes, someone he actually respects and trusts, right? Who saw yeah, all the shit that they went through in boot camp, right? And understands, like, what they went through with with uh, Gomer Pyle there. So that's a great bit. It's kind of like you don't really see that side of Joker any other time in the film. 
I think, yeah, they're, they're really close. Um, it feels so real too. Um, just that little bit of interaction they have. And also, you know, the scene is great because he meets the other members of the squad and he immediately clashes right with Adam Baldwin's animal mother. Right, who pairs to basically clash with the, everyone. Right. But Animal like. you know, Animal Mother is sort of like like another like an alternate universe version of Gomer Pyle. You know, like if he had if he had come out of boot camp alive, like he could have maybe turned into Animal Mother. Right. Some right. sort of like crazy warrior who took insane risks to kill the enemy. Right. And the scene is done up for laughs. Like when he and Joker have had big confrontation. <laughs> well, first you gotta eat the peanuts out, peanuts of, my out of my shit. shit. <laughs> and and right. you know, there's all that whooping in the background, like all the other sorts of whoa. You know, it's like straight out of junior high. <laughs> right. You you talk the talk. We'll see if you walk the walk. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and they kind of each take the measure of each other. And then uh, I think it's eight. It's either Doc J or Eight Ball who breaks them up and sort of like puts in perspective and says like, yeah, you wouldn't believe it. But in combat, this is a really good guy to have around you. <laughs> right. And then they, there's a there's a North Vietnamese uh, army soldier that like cadaver there. Right, and you and you don't know where that's going. That's crazy Earl, that soldier, and he's sort of like sitting around with this guy. Then they lift his hat up to reveal that he's dead, and they're having a little fun with a, a captured dead guy. There was a scene that shot for this movie that they did not use where they were playing soccer, and the soccer ball was a Vietnamese soldier's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they pulled that. They thought that was maybe too much. But like these scenes kind of establish, you know, Joker as a much more complex character than we saw him in the first half. Right. Right. Uh, and then we see like, for example, I mentioned it in the first uh, podcast we did on, on the first half of the movie. You know, like there's that great scene where Joker just comes out and says, you know, what I believe to be the theme of the film. Like he says the duality of man um, right. when he gets into that dispute with uh, that officer um and it's not really debated much more like they kind of mention it they talk about it the the officer clearly doesn't understand what the hell joker is talking about um and <laughs> all uh, i ask of my men is that they obey my orders as they would the word of god <laughs> um and then you know they're, they're, they get back to the plot of the movie so I, I'm sure you know that this is obviously not filmed in Vietnam. This is filmed at the Becton Gas Works. Yeah, it's uh, filmed in East London suburbs, which is amazing. Yeah. And they, they, you know, Kubrick's not leaving England for anything at this point in his life. And uh, he decides to bring Vietnam to him. And they uh, they brought in set decorators to, like, literally shoot up the gas works and just destroyed in a strategic way that looked good. Um, and then, uh, I read that he brought in like an enormous number of fake tropical plants at huge expense and didn't like the way it looked and just dropped it. Well, but the palm trees stayed because when they roll in with the tank. Well, I think um, the palm trees came later. Then they ended up going with real trees and real plants, but they started off with fake and it didn't look right. So the palm trees were the second try that worked out. And I love the way that they sort of paint the billboards on the buildings and things like that. Like, it's very convincing. 
It looks great. You would never, ever guess that it's England. The only tip-off is the men aren't really sweating. You know what I'm saying? And, like, for example, yeah. when you watch a lot of Vietnamese films or Platoon, you know, like, they go to great pains to convey the stifling heat and humidity. And these guys don't look like they're hot. Right. You know, and the sky also doesn't really look like you could, there's a little bit of a, you know, maybe North Atlantic clouds there. Like, it doesn't really look like the sky is right. But, you know, at the time when I saw this, you know, certainly I, I assumed they filmed it somewhere in Asia. Like, it looked so convincing to me. Uh, and it was it was years later that I found out that they had filmed it at a location in the United Kingdom. And it just blew me away when I found that out. So they spent a month just doing the scene where they're crouched behind that short little wall mm -hmm. um, when the men sort of go in and get picked off by the sniper initially. And um, it took one of the reasons it took them a month was that every time they would lean over and shoot at this, the building, you know, like giving covering fire or blindly shooting towards the sniper, <clears throat> they would, you know, fire off a bunch of squibs and fireworks and it would shoot up the, it would make the building look like it got shot up and it took them like three days to reset you know mm -hmm. the set so every time they did a take it was another couple days hmm. um well we'll get to the sniper in a bit i think we should let's cover some other stuff before we get to the sniper um you know kubrick's did you see kubrick's daughter in this she has a little uh she has a little cameo I didn't see it actually. Uh, there's a scene. Uh, there's that little bit, maybe maybe the weakest bit in the movie, where they they're sort of being interviewed by uh, some reporters, and you know, Joker oh, right. makes that comment that he wanted to be the first kid on his block with a confirmed kill. Right. Uh, but there's that part of that film crew is a woman who's they show her sort of helping steady the cameras. They walk past the men who are crouching down. That's right. his daughter Vivian. Right. Uh, with a tiny little cameo. And, and the the soundtrack is credited in this movie to Abigail Mead, like the sort of the synthesizer music. And Abigail Mead is Vivian Kubrick. Mm -hmm. So she did it under a pseudonym, but that's her. That's uh, she's just got a little tiny part in this. Um, there's a second prostitute scene in this movie. Right. Yeah. There's the first one that Joker and Rafterman meet on the streets of Way. And then there's the one who comes into essentially the area where the men are camped out on the back of a moped who's being pimped out. It's unclear who that guy is. Like, I've often wondered, is that guy supposed to be her brother? No, he's like, well, I don't know, but he's an NVA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know. Well, no, I don't Regular. think he's an NVA. He's supposed to be an Arvin. Uh, he's Arvin, right. That's what I mean. Yeah, he's an Arvin army, uh, you know, regular, basically. Right. And, you know, oh, so, so brother to Boku. <laughs> no, boom, boom, so brother. <laughs> You know, it's funny because it's such a great scene and it's it's done for laughs and and you know, they could never do that now. Right. You know, and you, but you have to say done for laughs in the Kubrick way. Like it's done for laughs and it also has a gut punch. Right. And and it's all done with sort of ad libs and cat calls from the men. Woo you know, when he pulls his pants down. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's eight balls moment in the sun. Right. And then he gets upstaged by Animal Mother. Right. right? He, after his marvelous performance, you know, demonstrating his uh, not as impressive uh, 
uh, endowment, um, animal mother just swoops in <laughs> and right. insults him. Right, insults him to his face and takes the girl <laughs> off, right, for, for a quickie. Right, and that sort of establishes, like, how close they are as a unit, too. Right, and how they can sort of engage in the most sort of outrageous comments to each other, and it doesn't mean anything because they're all, a, a, like, a very cohesive unit. But, I'm, but they could never do that now. You know, right. the language used in that scene would be absolutely verboten. Right. Well, Kubrick would probably still do it, but, you know. Right, right, but... Um, Not but, in the U.S., know, it's sort of interesting how, like, you know, in boot camp, there's no sexuality at all. Whereas in the second half of the movie, you know, like, there's there's much fodder over the fact that the men are, you know, taking advantage of prostitutes as they can. I mean, for Christ's sake, they're called the Lust Hog Squad. Right. They're basically, like, chasing women and, and smoking dope most of the time. <laughs> um uh, what was I going to say? Uh, and then, you know, like like you were leading up to, you know, the, the big uh, the big finish for the film is a very, very long set piece, about a 30 minute sequence yeah. um, where they come under fire from a sniper um, and sort of one after the other, the men start getting picked off and Cowboy finds himself in charge of the squad. Right? Right. A position he has not sought and does not desire. Right. He's basically like was like the second or third in charge. He was like uh, there was maybe one other NCO, one other sergeant ahead of him. And he he gets killed, I think, when with the booby trapped uh, bunny uh, stuffed animal. Um, and because uh, the lieutenant gets killed with some mortar fire behind the tank as they're coming into the ruins. And um, yeah, that's crazy Earl who gets killed. He's the guy. With the dead body in, in camp. Right. I think, right. Crazy Earl is kind of like, I guess he's like the, you know, uh, the, the right. senior sergeant and then. Uh, Top kick, as they say. Right. And then, um, right. And then Arliss Howard <clears throat> becomes uh, the senior NCO. He's in charge of the platoon after that. And then very quickly, you know, it you know, they become lost. Right. And this is to convey that maybe Cowboy is not up to it. Right. He becomes leader by attrition. Right. Uh, and then they get lost. And then he leads them essentially into ambush. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's very confusing situation. I mean, he, he's not sure what to do. He's not exactly decisive. But at the same time, he become you know, the only time he becomes decisive is he decides to leave the two guys who've been shot and take right. off. Duck and Jay animal, and Eight Ball. Right. And and, uh, and and basically Animal Mother sort of takes over, just says, I'm not leaving them. Right. And and, and Animal Mother is right. Yeah. Like, it's an interesting bit because this is when you get to see what they were talking about earlier in the film. Like, he sees the situation much more clearly than Cowboy does. Like, we got to get the men out. We got to get the sniper. Well, he's right. the one that says, uh, Animal Mother says it's one sniper, whereas a Cowboy thinks that they're <laughs> imminently going to be ambushed by a large force. Right. And Animal Mother, he suspects it's one sniper uh, based on the way things have gone to that point. And then he goes out to confirm it by getting up there and sort of looking by reconnaissance himself. And then he waves them all up like, you're good up to here. 
uh, and they're behind kind of, you know, there's a bunch of shelled out buildings with holes in them. And, you know, they're behind one and, and basically Cowboy keeps calling base to try to get a tank to come help them. And the tank's not showing up. Um, so they advance up to where Animal Mother is. And unfortunately, the sniper um, basically, uh, you know, can see... They show you can see a, cowboy can through see a cowboy hole. And, and they show this, you know, view where the sniper like can clearly see him just for a second, just to show you like that there's a clear viewpoint. And it it you know, that that one little few seconds of of uh film in there, it just gives you so much perspective about the space they're in. It's it's so effective. Um and then Cowboy gets basically shot right in the middle of the torso, in his back or his side. Right, and he dies right away. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a sort of, it's a non-sentimental, uh, very tragic death. Um, and it, it's it's so much unlike, even that one little scene where Cowboy dies is just completely unlike most war movies. Right, and, then, and, and Animal Mother never won to miss the absolute truth of the situation says to Joker, you're fresh out of friends. Right. <laughs> I love, by the way, just to, to go back to animal mother's ability to sort of like see everything for the way it is. Like when, when he realizes he has to go out and like, no one wants to go. And then like, he stand down mother. He'll fuck you cowboy. Fuck all you guys. And he jumps right. over the wall and yep. he knows they've got to cover him. And he yep. goes charging in. It's like a one man army with like all hell happening around him. It's such a great moment. It's mother's best moment. Yeah. And he, he really is actually a really good soldier. He's you know, a great sort of, soldier. Like you want that guy with you. Yeah. Yeah. He, he obviously sort of like reveals himself to be really, really good at what he does. And he's the kind of guy that kind of he's in his element there. Um, right. Oh, yeah. Than the well, like, all I need is someone to throw hand grenades at him for the rest of his life, I believe is how they describe it. <laughs> but, you know, in the book, uh, and I, it's been maybe 20 years since I read the book, but I remember this discreetly. The book, Cowboys is, is killed by Joker in the book. So in the book... I did uh, read it. I remember that. Cowboy goes out to try to save the wounded man from the sniper and ends up getting shot himself. And it is it is obvious to everyone that Cowboy is being kept alive by the sniper to draw other men out. And when in the book, Joker realizes this and draws his sidearm and he levels it at Cowboy and Cowboy sees that Joker is about to kill him to end the situation. Right. And, and Cowboy says to Joker, it's Cowboy's last line in the book. He says, I never liked you, Joker. I never thought you were funny. And then Joker right. kills him. And Joker assumes squad command at that point because he becomes a senior person. Right. So that's a very, that's a significant change from the book. Yeah. You know, I read that, um, you know, Hasford, Hare, and Kubrick worked on the screenplay together, but Hare was in the middle. And Kubrick wanted to meet Hasford, and Hare kept telling him, like, no, you don't. You don't want to meet this guy. This is a scary guy. You are not like him. Let me handle it. And then uh, finally, they met sort of over Hare's objections, and they met one time, and it was exactly like what Hare said. And Kubrick and Hasford did not get along. And uh, 
they never met again. And Kubrick kept Hasford very much at arm's length after that one meeting. He actually Hmm. snuck onto the set at one point, Hasford, (laughs) and he was mistaken for Michael Hare because they said, who are you? And he said, I wrote this. And they thought that it was Michael Hare, so they let him wander around. Hmm. Um, Michael Hare's description um, of writing the movie, by the way, was one with Kubrick. He said it was a three-year phone call with Stanley Kubrick with um, multiple, with periodic small interruptions. That's the way he (laughs) described it. Well, you know, it's funny because if you read, I've read um, other screenwriters who worked with Kubrick and made similar comments. And like, for example, the guy who he worked with on Eyes Wide Shut said almost the same thing. And he said that, you know, Kubrick would call at all hours of the day and night. Like he didn't really care what time it was in L.A. Yeah. You know, he would call you, you know, it would be 2 a.m. L.A. time or, you know, 5 a.m. And and Kubrick would be like, well, listen, I'm ready to go over my notes. So uh, let's start. (laughs) And then you'd be in a five hour call. And it started whenever Kubrick wanted to, you know, like whenever it worked for him and he was paying the bills. So you took the five hour call at two in the morning and And heaven help you if you didn't answer. You know, Arthur C. Um, Clarke, I think they were cooped up in a hotel, um, in a hotel room for like three months or something, writing 2001, besides, I'm sure, the phone calls. But, you know, the the phone probably wasn't as good then. Long distance, you know. Um, What was I going to say? Kubrick apparently is in this, by the way, has a cameo as well, although I have not seen him. But apparently Kubrick appears very briefly in this film. But anyway, um, but I back think he to was the a second prostitute. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so Cowboy is dead. Joker is fresh out of friends. Um, and then uh, they're able to eventually move up, and it is none other than Rafter Man, right, who kind of becomes the hero of the day. Joker gets cornered by the sniper and essentially kind of kind of panics and isn't really able to sort of function, right? There's a great bit where he... Uh, his gun jams. He, yeah, and or he drops it, or he's just too panicked. No, his gun jams, because he, he shoots and then it doesn't fire, and then she turns around, she hears the... She hears it, spins around, and she's shooting at him. It turns out it's a, you know, a child, young, a young female, like maybe, maybe 20 or 18 or 15. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think she's supposed to be a kid. And she has pigtails and she's shooting it, you know, she's firing away at Joker, who's pinned behind a stone column, like 15 feet away. And then Rafter Man basically, like, hears the commotion because they're in two-man fire teams at this point searching through the building like they split up. And Rafter Man shoots her. And Rafter Man is so psyched. He finally got into the shit. Right. Yeah. And, and the irony is that happy. he's... Right, exactly. He's so excited that he killed a little... That he shot a little girl. Yeah. Right? Like, that, like all his training, all this running around is so that he can shoot a teenager. Right. On top of the horrible tragedy that's just occurred, you know, these guys have gotten picked off. You know, it's just it's just a terrible the whole thing is terrible from every angle. And he's super excited. Right. We are life takers and heartbreakers. You know, he's <laughs> he's just like spouting off this nonsense. Yeah, he's strutting around and he's like he's hooting and like high you know, high fiving himself. 
and everybody else is at least kind of subdued. And then, right. then they're, you know, it's so she's alive and she starts saying something like she's basically laying there incapacitating, looking at them dying. And, you know, somebody, she's saying something Vietnamese and Joker, you know, basically, I guess, has picked up enough Vietnamese. So they say what she's saying. And he, he answers, she's praying. And then, you know, after a minute of that, they're kind of standing around looking down at her and joker says you know they're gonna leave animal mother says let's get out of here right he says fuck her let her rot let her rot and joker says like you know what are we gonna do with her should we leave her like this and just then she says shoot me shoot me shoot me she says in english and keeps repeating it um you know in a weak voice because she's already mortally injured and they're sort of there's a pause they're not sure what to do and the rest of the squad is kind of looking on. Um, and Joker sort of has to decide what to do. And he decides to basically finish her off. And he, he shoots her. And he, and he kind of, he, he, I mean, he's, he's kind of being egged on by Animal Mother. Yeah, I, I think, well, Animal Mother, he, he kind of, in a way, he challenges him. But in a way, he's more like, let's just you know, do it or not, let's get out of here. And the other way, he's kind of like, all right, tough guy, what are you going to do if you say you don't want to leave her here? Right, and I think he's uh, he also is trying to say, like, you're no different than us, right? And in the end, in a sense, he's right, because Joker does shoot her, right? He doesn't try to help her. He doesn't try to save her. He does shoot her. Well, but shooting her in a way from... in that, It's a mercy killing. It is. It is a mercy killing. Um, but you know, how much of it is, I think it mostly is intention mostly is to help. But then at this point you're into the complexity because again, there's and no she, right and, way. And she shot his only friend. You know, you could imagine Joker's emotions in this moment are very conflicted. Right. And that's written right. on his face. Right. He just, he, she almost got him. She got cowboy he's kind of being mocked you know he's mocked earlier in the movie for not having the thousand yard stare right, right. They're, they're kind of questioning like does he have what it takes right and right. and the, the green rafter man you know is just flying high so you know there's probably a lot going on in his mind there well yeah i mean he certainly has the thousand yard stare from this but but the other thing is that at the same time as all this kind of machismo and character reflections going on the the same time this climactic second moment in the movie it's also you know it's vietnam in a micro the, the whole vietnam conflict in a microcosm it's like this one little girl who's basically you know in a, a gorilla a gorilla organization uh brings down this squad of much better equipped guys right. you know and shoots at them one by one and then the solution is that they shoot and kill this like girl who in any other circumstance is just i mean just the whole it's, again the whole circumstance is terrible it's, it's right. basically it is the entire vietnam war well, illustrated ex exactly i was gonna say like this this is one of the few scenes in the whole movie that's sort of a metaphor for the war right where she's you know she's taking on the giant american military right she's the scrappy ill-equipped you know, B.F. Goodrich wearing, tube of rice carrying, lone soldier. I mean. Right. And it's basically yeah. wrong from every side. 
Like right. there's no hero. There's no good guy, no bad guy. They're all bad guys. Uh, and they're all good guys, uh, in a sense. And, um, it's, it's a horrible moral quandary and there's no answer to it. It's just, it's, it's miserable. Right. And then very abruptly, you know, from this scene, we cut to the final scene, right? Where they're walking and it's dark and they're lit by fires right. and they're singing Mickey the Mickey Mouse. Mouse theme, right? In this sort of like yep. ridiculous way. Right. They're walking through this fire strewn battlefield sort of spread out as a platoon. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a, there's a voiceover that, um, Joker is basically saying, and, you know, he says that he's a short timer and he says that, you know, he's happy to be alive. And he's not afraid. And he's not afraid. And in, in other words, he kind of, he's saying in a way he gets the thousand yard stare and in a way he, he's going to get out of there and he realizes there's no answer. And I guess in the end, his ultimate wisdom is just that the situation is on everything about it is untenable and the only thing he can try to do is just the most you can ever hope for is to stay alive and not be constantly shitting yourself right and chewed up by this thing right but i think the emphasis is the staying alive right like right. he kind of realizes he's going to get through the war yeah right? he's almost through right which is you know uh, when you compare it to the ending of most Vietnam movies, they try for a bigger punch and usually end up missing the mark. Right. You know, like they accomplish more in this movie by doing less. Plus, you know, these guys also, uh, they're singing the Mickey, they're, they're also demonstrating how young they are. You know, they're singing the Mickey Mouse theme. Um, right. A child uh, song. Right. And, uh, <sighs> You know, the ending, I think, confuses people a lot. And I think I bet that one of the reasons the movie had sort of a mixed reception at the time is I think that people were really scratching their head at the ending because who does that you right. know, when they when they make a movie like this? I mean, all right. So you give them uh, Lee Ermey was fascinating to watch. Sure. The ending was weird. And then we get to I'm talking about the average, you know, audience take. Then we get to Vietnam. It's total chaos. We did. They don't know what's going on. There's a couple of funny scenes with hookers, um, you know, with some cute little like me love you long time. And then there's some good battle scenes and a brutal decision at the end. And there's a clear climax. And then right. in the end, when, when he when the they get the sniper and then and then Joker kills her. Right. Um, and I mean, it's it's certainly more accessible to the average movie moviegoer than the Star Child, right? Or Coop, or, or or Jack Nicholson in the right. black and white photo at the Overlook Hotel. But then that ending is not accessible, right? The very end scene where they're just walking through the field and singing Mickey Mouse, right? And it doesn't tell you how to feel. Right. right. Like at the end of Platoon, because I, I guess I can, I, I just keep coming back to Platoon because I feel like it's kind of like the, you know, the the movie that's most closely linked to this in terms of like temporal release and, and media coverage. You know, the ending of Platoon only lets you feel one way. 
Right. Right. And and, and there's a narr- there's a voiceover and you're just supposed to feel that it's this cathartic moment and and Charlie Sheen is the son of the two fathers, right? The two sergeants. Right. Whereas this movie doesn't tell you how to feel and, and it's kind of left you to sort it all out. Right. It it all that it delivers to you in the end is really forceful moral ambiguity. It just, you know, he just, by virtue of the end of that scene, the end of the movie, and then reflecting back to the difference between boot camp, where Joker has gone, has transformed, and then where he ends up, and his reaction in the end, um, all that it does is hammer home the ambiguity. It does not tell you anything else. Um, it just makes sure that you that you can't feel one particular way. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a great, it's a great ending. It is a great ending. And, you know, and it's an ending that gets better with time. Like it's an ending that you kind of think about on your own afterwards, as opposed to like, like the more they spell it out for you, there's less for you to think, you know, and 10 minutes after platoon, like you don't really have a lot to say about it. Yeah. And the end, the whole movie gets better with time. The ending absolutely, in in, in particular, does. I agree. And, you know, and just for our listeners, you know, lest you think I'm pissing all over Platoon, I like Platoon, and and I like Oliver Stone, and I in our Platoon podcast, like I'm, I'm pretty positive on the movie, but, and it's not an insult to say this, you know, Oliver Stone is no Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- this this movie. Man, I mean, I just, you, you got to see, you got to, I mean, just briefly sort of skimming the contemporaneous reviews from the time of release in 87. They didn't they are, love it. It is, they are mixed at best, if any, yeah. tending towards negative. And I remember us going to see it and when it came out, I remember being amazed by the movie, but not completely, I, I didn't, I didn't respect and love it to the degree I do now. You know, it's funny because. You know, I was a very non-discerning film goer as a kid. Like, I literally watched everything and anything. Like, on TV and the movies, I went to everything. And um, Airwolf. Right. Airwolf is a great example. I thought Airwolf was a great show. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I remember when I saw Blade Runner. I'll get back to Kubrick here in a second. But I remember when I saw Blade Runner... um, I saw Blade Runner twice. I saw it with you, and then I saw it with my dad the next day. But I remember when I saw Blade Runner, we were, you know, we were little kids then. And I remember being aware in Blade Runner that, like, this was much better than most things. Like, and I knew, even as a small kid, that, like, I was watching and experiencing something very special that much more care and thought had gone into. And I remember when I saw this feeling the same way, like I had seen Platoon and I'd seen a lot of war movies and I'd grown up on a lot of world war two, black and white movies. And, but I remember when I saw this being aware, like this is much better than most of the dog shit that I watch. Oh yeah. And you know, at this point we'd seen a bunch of Kubrick movies because I remember eagerly anticipating what I remember hearing when the movie was going to come out and that he'd made it. Yeah. But what's amazing is that, you know, this is the penultimate Kubrick movie. Like, we don't get another Kubrick movie for 12 years. Right. And and, and then by the time Eyes Wide Shut comes out, 
Kubrick is dead. Yeah, exactly. He basically you know? just finished editing it and died. I, I actually 70. saw Barry Lyndon um, and The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and uh, Eyes Wide Shut in the theater. So I saw four Kubrick movies in their first run, although... I was a toddler when uh, Barry Lyndon came out. My parents dragged me to it, but I did, in fact, see uh, Barry Lyndon in the theater. Could you imagine well, taking a toddler to Barry Lyndon? What were my parents thinking? I mean, they were I, thinking they didn't want to get a babysitter. I mean, I can only imagine what kind of torture that must have been for them. Um, Have you ever tried to get anyone, an adult, someone else besides you or me to watch Barry Lyndon? I've I've given Barry Lyndon to a few people as a gift, and most of them have liked it. But that's, you know, that's really? the movie. <laughs> yeah, but you got to give that movie to a very special kind of person. I, I mean, love Barry Lyndon. It's one I of my all-time gr- famous favorite films. Like, in some ways, I like it more than this. Uh, I think Barry Lyndon has so much to say. Uh, and it's such a like I like the sort of picaresque aspects of it, uh, and I love Full Metal Jacket. But in some ways, I almost like Barry Lyndon more. And probably not a lot of Kubrick fans say that, but I find myself thinking about Barry Lyndon a lot. Maybe because I thought about this kind of more, and I'm kind of more done with it. Um, yeah, but, uh, Barry oh, Lyndon. Barry Lyndon's was, a champion for me. Oh, it's, I, it's I one of my favorites. Barry Lyndon in 2001 were my two faves that he did, but um, but. Uh, I got to say, though, this movie, over time, it grows. Full Metal though, Jacket. Yeah, Full Metal Jacket yeah. just gets better and better. Wait, the last thing I'll say about Barry Lyndon, then we got to get back to Full Metal Jacket, is I love the epilogue in Barry Lyndon. Like, when the movie ends, there's a little card that comes up on the screen, and it says, It was in the reign of George III that the aforesaid personages lived and quarreled, good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to Kubrick and uh, Full Metal Jacket. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what Kubrick thought of this one. I know that he was upset that Platoon came out the year before. Because Platoon came out while he was making this. And I know that he was worried that it would damage the movie's reception. And to some extent, he was right. Yeah. Um, I mean... It did, I mean, didn't Platoon win the Oscar? It did. It won Best Picture. I know. That, that tells you something about the Oscars, by the and way. And Full Metal Jacket, I believe, won nothing. I think it was nominated for screenplay or something, but I think, yeah, it didn't it win anything. Won, um, it won or something. It won some smaller awards, but it, it, uh, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and did not win. But, but it didn't really win anything. Like, you look at... I mean, you look at what Platoon won, and Platoon just won everything. Platoon won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Editing, and Best Sound. Yeah. You know? But it also shows you, like, you know, Platoon gets credit because it kind of came out at a time that I think the country was more willing to look back. Like, Like the Deer Hunter... Yeah. Or Apocalypse Now, like they're especially the Deer Hunter. It's so painful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like Vietnam is such a raw wound in the country when the Deer Hunter comes out. You know, this yeah. is '86, right? And 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 you know, people like you and me who saw Platoon as teenagers, you know, we were never 
old enough to remember Vietnam or we never had a fear of going to Vietnam. Like we didn't know anybody who died in Vietnam. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it was, it was, even though it's only, you know, less than 20 years, it's, it's for, it was enough time, I think, A, for the nation to heal at least a little and enough time for a young audience like you and I to be interested in go. I don't know if you remember this, but our high school has a Vietnam Memorial in front of it. Um, there's a flagpole. Uh, there's a little, uh, like by the cafeteria, there was a little like rotunda where cars could pull up and pull out. And there's a flagpole in the middle of that rotunda. And there's a little plaque at the base of that flagpole that lists the people from our high school who had died in the war. And I remember, right. uh, noticing that at some point we were in high school and that was sort of like the first time that I could have perceived that like, huh, the people who went off to Vietnam and died were just like me. You know what I'm saying? Like they walked these halls yeah. of our high school, but you know, other than moments like that, like Vietnam felt distant to me, you know? Yeah. And it's also, it was a more complex war, I think for kids to understand where it's like world war two is a little more like the lines are more starkly drawn and you could understand it at a younger age. Whereas Vietnam you know, Vietnam now people struggle to understand. It's such a mess. Sure. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't think I will ever tire of this movie. And, and there's a lot of movies I've tired of that I've just watched too much and I've burned out on it. I didn't watch the whole movie in preparation for this, but I watched a couple scenes and I don't know, like it's, it still feels very immediate to me. Oh man. I mean, there's so much to, to see and to, Watch. I want to hang out with the Lost Hog Squad. It's like layer <laughs> upon layer. I want to hang out with uh, with Sergeant Hartman. <laughs> that I'll pass on. <laughs> um, what is your should... major malfunction, pal? <laughs> who's your Who's your squad leader? <laughs> Sir Private Snowball's my squad leader. Private Snowball. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, <I'm> sorry. <laughs> I mean, like, this movie is so quotable. Like, quote me one line from Platoon. One line. There's nothing. I think Charlie Scene said, where's all the Coke? Is the Coke in my trailer? Oh, that yeah, that didn't make it in the final cut. Right. But this movie is just from start to finish. It's just one great bit after the other. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Well, let's wrap there in the interest of time, shall we? We shall. All right. Um, thank you guys for our two-parter, and we'll be back uh, next uh, week or so-ish. Six. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do a six-parter on Barry Lyndon. <laughs> the worst part is you probably could. The first part will you just could. be about the lenses Kubrick chose. <laughs> you could do a whole episode. Yeah, you could, the lenses, and then you could do a whole episode on the one dual sequence, like the one. I mean, you know, you know the 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 really the one where uh, where he spares. Uh, Actually, that uh, Leon Vitale. That's, that's the Leon scene Vitale. with Leon. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. Leon Vitale. Yeah. yeah. Well, at some point, we should do Barry Lyndon. All right. All right. It's tough to touch the master, but at some point, we should do Barry Lyndon. Yep. I'll see All you right. Next thanks, time. everybody.